Finish this phrase with me. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. All right, say it, let's say it together. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, you didn't do very well there. We're going to give you a, another chance. Let's say it again together. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. All right, in our Christian life, what is the main thing? Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? Paul said when he went to Corinth, when I was among you, I was with you in fear and much trembling. My knees were knocking, but I purposed in my heart to only know Christ Jesus and Him crucified. That is the main thing. That is the anchor that holds us steady. I want to talk about that anchor this morning. And so the title of my message, if you want to put one on it, is The Lamb Has Overcome. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. I want to read verses 1 through 10. Use this as a, a main text. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Who is this sitting on the throne? Question. Who is this sitting on the throne? It's the Father God, right? This is the Father God. He has the seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, actually should read in the middle of the throne, I saw in the middle of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So you have to get the picture here. When John is looking, this lamb it's when it says that he was standing there as, as having been slain, they were looking at the lamb with the fresh marks of slaughter on him, with the blood still running down. I mean, he was just recently, there's some translations say that he was recently slain. I mean, it is fresh. The crucifixion, the lamb had been recently slaughtered, but he's standing there in the midst of the throne, blood running down his body. And he has seven horns, which represent, what do horns represent in the Bible? Power, strength, right? So he's got seven. What is the number seven? Fullness. So this lamb who was slain, appearing there with blood on it, the fresh marks of slaughter, has a seven horns. So it has all power and all authority given to it. And it also has seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he has all authority and power and the full manifestation, representation of the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to the Lamb. He is in the center of the throne. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is the main thing, that in the middle of heaven, there is a lamb standing who is worthy. The seals, I believe, represent the whole history of future history of the earth. He's the one who's worthy. He controls the history. He calls the shots because he's overcome. It says in verse 5 that the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So the lamb has overcome. I want to try to answer two questions if I can. The first question I want to answer is, what did Jesus overcome? What did he overcome? And the second question I want to try to answer is, how did he overcome? Brandon, when you shared last week on justice, things started rolling around inside of me, and that kind of inspired this message inside of me. If I had to ask you the question, what was the biggest obstacle to Jesus fulfilling his mission to redeem humanity? What was the biggest obstacle? Okay, if he overcame, what was the biggest obstacle that he overcame to bring salvation to you and me? I believe that the biggest problem was actually the justice of God. You shared last week how God sets a plumb line in his community of people, and that plumb line is justice. I want you to, to treat everyone justly and rightly. But I want to tell you there's a plumb line in heaven that is justice and righteousness, holiness and rightness before the Lord. Psalm uh, 97 verse 2 said that the very foundation of God's throne is two things. What are they? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. So justice is doing the right thing, right? So has God ever done the wrong thing? If He were not to do the right thing, what would His throne would fail. His authority to rule would be lost. God always does the right thing. The problem is that every human person, including all of us, when Jesus came to redeem, we were sinful, crooked, and out of the right plumb line, and we weren't just. So how could a holy God come and redeem and change and make us His own? Let me read you a couple of verses out of Proverbs, which kind of emphasize this. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And then Proverbs 21, 15 says this, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but it is a terror for the workers of iniquity. So our problem with the Lord is not the problem that did He love us or not. Our problem was that His justice in view of our crookedness and of our sinfulness was almost an insurmountable obstacle. 
The holiness of God is a subject, and the justice of God is a subject that is largely not spoken about um, in today's church. Let me just give you a quick overview, if you've got just a minute. This is by a guy named James Boyce, who was a pastor and also a biblical scholar. Here's how he summarizes it. Today's preaching, he said, is deficient at many points, but there is no point at which it is more inadequate and even contrary to the teaching of the New Testament than in its neglect of the wrath of God. God's wrath is a dominant Bible teaching, and the point in Romans at which Paul begins his formal exposition of what the gospel is. Yet to judge from most contemporary forms of Christianity, the wrath of God is either an unimportant doctrine, which is an embarrassment, or an entirely wrong notion which any enlightened Christian should abandon. There's a problem at this point, of course, and that problem is that most people think in human categories rather than in terms of Scripture. When we do that, wrath inevitably suggests something like a capricious human anger or malice. God's wrath is not the same thing as human anger, of course. But because we fail to appreciate this fact, we're uneasy with the very idea of God's wrath and think that it is somehow unworthy of God's character, so we steer away from the issue. True or not true? Okay. One more paragraph. Hang, hang with me. The biblical writers had no such reticence. They spoke of God's wrath frequently, obviously viewing it as one of God's great perfections alongside his other attributes. J.I. Packer says, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. Arthur Pink wrote, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. In the Old Testament, more than 20 words are used to refer to God's wrath. Other very different words relate to human anger. There are nearly 600 important passages on this subject in the Bible. That's a lot. So this is a big deal. The issue with salvation was how do you take wicked people, because he said there in Proverbs, it's an abomination to the Lord to take the wicked and just say, okay, they're okay, they're righteous. How is that going to happen? The problem is the depth of sin that's in the human heart, and we've all come from this, and we're still fighting through, putting to death the deeds of the body, right? Amen? Are you alive? Okay, th this is what we're doing. This is our fight. Um, sin, to me, has two roots. One is deeper than the other. The first root in sin is direct disobedience to God's commandments. That's a root of sin that we're all guilty of. We either by, I don't know, before I was a, a believer, I didn't care less about God. I didn't have any idea of what his requirements were or what he desired for my life. I, I say, and it's true, I loved a candy bar more than I loved God. I couldn't care less what he wanted me to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Um, so I think most of us had come from that place. Some of us maybe not where we openly said, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to defy him. But that's one root of sin. The other one is, is deeper, and I think it's, it's more pervasive that is the root that prefers other things to God himself. So we're saying to God, I know you're there, but I prefer drinking or shooting drugs into my arm or prefer having illicit sex to you because that's what I want. I don't want you. Um, let me give you a couple of verses that, uh, that talk about this. This is Romans 1. Again, I'm laying foundation here, and I'm going to try to move quickly after this. Romans 1, 21, for even though they knew God, 
This is Paul explaining the gospel and the need for Jesus to come. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, notice this word, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. So there's a choosing going on here. God, you're not important. You're not valuable. You're not joyous to me. I'm going to choose something else in your place. This is a deep, deep root of sin. Here's Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens. This is verse 12 and 13. At this and shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Are you guys with me? Have you hewn out broken cisterns before Christ apprehended you in your life, thinking that that was going to bring satisfaction and joy, and it didn't work and it doesn't work? Here's what happens when salvation comes to somebody. There's a change of joys and of loves that transforms the entire inner part of us. This is a quote from Augustine. Uh, I love church history, and I love, he, he wrote a book called Confessions, and the book is his autobiography, but it's all in prayer. He's praying everything to God, and so this is kind of cool. He's describing now when he came to Christ. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. That, when somebody talks like that, that's the kind of talk I want to hear from somebody that says they've given their life to Jesus. All the fruitless joys that I went after, now it's Jesus. The joy is in the person. That's what salvation does in us. It completely changes us on the inside to where our desires now are after a person and not after the fleshly things. So in the pursuit of saving us, from his own divine justice, Jesus came and endured the cross. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. And then you know what verse 9 says? It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what is it? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, right? So has anybody ever asked you, saved from what? Have you talked, I've, talked to Chris, I've talked to people before doing street evangelism and, you know, talking about salvation, and they say to me, saved from what? And the biblical answer is, we're saved from the wrath of God. The biblical answer is we're saved from His justice having its rightful work on us because the wrath of God is just simply the rightful response of holiness to our sin. So there's a huge problem that was in the whole plan of salvation, and that was the justice of God. How do we get past the huge obstacle of God's justice. And so I was looking at the life of Jesus, and you know, this, next week is Easter, and this is Holy Week, and Friday we celebrate Good Friday, the day when Jesus was 
crucified and died for us. And I began to just think about, again, his life in the light of justice and in the light of um, him, what he did for us. And I, I began to think about the whole process and the scriptures. You know how Jesus quoted, he knew the scriptures very much by heart, and so he's quoting the Psalms, this is going to happen, this must happen, this is going to happen, this is how it's going to lead in, this is going to happen. So I started to look at the things that happened to Jesus that were prophesied in the scripture, and I started to just get this list, and I go, all of these things are completely unjust. Here you have a person who comes from the presence of God, who is himself God, and he's giving his life to ransom humanity, and everything that is prophesied about him basically is just one injustice after another that happens to him. So let me just go real quickly through this list. Um, he says, to his disciples, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So it's prophesied of Jesus, the very people that he came to save did what to him? John 1 says he came to his own, and his own what? They didn't receive him. So that's injustice, is it not? The scriptures also prophesy that Jesus must be hated. The word that is written in their law, Jesus said to his disciples, must be fulfilled. I like the way he says it must be fulfilled. It must, this has to be. The scripture cannot be broken. The word written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Justice or injustice? It's injustice. The scriptures prophesy that the disciples would abandon Jesus in his hour of need. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then the scriptures prophesy that he'll be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Again, Jesus is quoting out of the Psalms. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread with me has lifted his heel against me. And then what was fulfilled, the, it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him who had set the price and been and set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. So who is that talking about? Judas Iscariot, right? All of this is injustice that happened to the Son of God. Everything in his journey was injustice, yet he's coming to try to rectify the whole issue of our situation with us being unjust before the Lord. He laid down his rights. He emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He humbled himself. He died an unimaginable death. You know what I wondered when I think about Jesus and he's at the Last Supper and Judas Iscariot is there and he eats the bread with Jesus? And what did it say happened when he ate the bread? What happened to Judas? Satan entered into him, right? And I'm thinking to myself, why would Satan do that? Do you think that Satan knew that Jesus was going to the cross? You don't think so? I think, he, I think he absolutely knew that Jesus was going to the cross. How did he know? Jesus said it over and over again to his disciples, and the scriptures that he quoted, the devil knew very well as well. And here's another reason why I think that the devil certainly knew that Jesus was going to go to the cross and that that was part of his plan. You remember after Peter has the revelation and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the next conversation he has with Jesus a couple of verses later, 
Jesus is saying, we must, I, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified and died, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And what happens to Peter? He says, Lord, Lord, it'll never be to you. This is not right. This isn't going to happen. And Jesus looks straight at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So the devil was trying to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem. I believe that. He knew what was going to happen there. He knew that was going to be the end of him and his reign and his power. He tried to tempt him in in the wilderness when he was being tempted, right? So what were the temptations? Turn this this stones into bread. Use your power. Jump off the temple. Show everybody who you are because you're destined to inherit. If you'll just bow down before me and worship me, what? I'll give you, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because they're mine to give and I'll give them to you. Because he knew Jesus' destiny. And so I believe he knew he was going to go to Jerusalem. Why would he enter into Judas and make this happen? Why would he enter into Judas and make it happen? You ever thought about that? I'm thinking, this is suicide. Satan is committing suicide here. This is going to bring about the very thing that is going to destroy him. And I I think this is the reason. I think the, the enemy tried to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem. But when he couldn't, because Jesus had set his face like flint, I think then he just wanted to make it as ugly as possible. Let's do everything to make it ugly and to try to um, hurt him, try to make it hurtful as possible. So I'm going to take your, one of your closest um, disciples here, the one that you dip bread with, and he's going to go and sell you out for 30 pieces of silver just to be hurtful. All of your disciples are going to turn away. And then Peter, of course, he says to him before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. I think the enemy at that point was just trying to make it ugly and hard and difficult for Jesus. But the the peak for sure of the injustices for Jesus is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he says, Father, if this what? If this cup can pass from me, please let it do. What, what does the cup rep- represent? What does it represent? It represents judgment and wrath. Let me give you some verses that, to back that out. Psalm 75, 8 says, A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. That's judgment. Revelation, there's three different verses that talk about drinking the wine. He also, this is Revelation 14.10, He will also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and brimstone, says the false prophet, in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. So drinking the cup is the wrath of God. The great city was split in three parts, and this is Revelation 16, 19. And the city and the nation of Babylon fell. The great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine, which is his fierce wrath. And then chapter 18, verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid, and give her to drink double according to all of her deeds, the cup which she has mixed. Mix in twice as much for her. So Jesus is experiencing here what is about to happen to Jesus. How is he going to deal with this issue of justice in our lives, in our own crookedness? How can God justify those that are rebellious and crooked against him? How can he do it? 
Jesus is just about to take and to drink the cup. He cries out. He said, if there's any other way, I don't want to drink it. Because what was going to happen when he drank that cup? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. What, what can that possibly mean? I mean, if we would have been there, I don't know if you, how many of you have seen the Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? Okay, when I saw that movie in the theater, like, that broke me up a lot in my heart. But I believe if we would have been there and seen the physical grotesqueness, you know, I've, seen, I've read medical doctors describing what it would be like to be crucified and all the things he went through. Like, we, we would have screamed and vomited and run out of the place. I mean, it's horrendous. So the, the physical was something that was horrendous, but we have no conception of what it would be like for the Son of God who had never been bro- had any broken fellowship with the Father, who had never done wrong and never sinned, never disobeyed, never turned away from His commands to take upon ourselves the sin of the world. All of the filthiness, all of the putridness, all of the defilement. You can see he didn't sweat blood because he was afraid of dying physically. He was anticipating God's making him to be sin and then pouring upon him the judgment that rightly comes upon sin. He became sin for us that we might become the yeah, it's, it's incomprehensible to us what he must have experienced as the Son of God to experience being made sin. It's incredible. He had to take our place in order for us to be justified. The fury. Can you imagine knowing Jesus had been in heaven with the Father since eternity? He knew what the wrath of God was. Can you imagine him contemplating that the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him? It's incomprehensible. The Lamb. He bought our justice by absorbing all of the injustice throughout his whole ministry. At the end on the cross, he absorbed the injustice of taking our punishment and our sin and the wrath of God upon himself and absorbing it for us. The Bible talks about Jesus as being the propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation means wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's what Jesus was. He literally absorbed the fury. That's how it's described in the book of Hebrews, right? The fierce fury of the wrath of God was poured upon Jesus. But it wasn't poured upon me. It wasn't poured upon you if you put your faith in Jesus. It's an incredible thing that the Son of God did for us. So I want to just draw a few implications from this for us. Because we're called also, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to turn there. This may seem a little disjointed. I'm trying to cut some things out because... Uh, of the time, First Peter chapter two, and I'm going to finish up with this passage. Maybe First Peter chapter two. Verse 
Let's think about this issue of justice and injustice. The thing that struck me when I was meditating on that this week is that in order for Jesus to bring justice and to take, get that plumb line in heaven right and that plumb line in our lives right and straight, he lived a life of injustice constantly. He was taking in injustice. It was his life. The things that he didn't deserve, he was taking in down to the apex of it, which was taking the very wrath of God and the judgment that he never deserved, but we did. I believe if we want to be people that are going to bring justice into culture and even into lives, we have to be prepared to be ready to take the injustice because it's going to come. Injustice on the part of the redeemer or the ones that are being a, redeem, a redemptive element is necessary for justice to come. Let me show you this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been talking about abortion some. Anybody ever heard of Randy Alcorn? You heard of his book called The Treasure Principle? Randy Alcorn was a pastor in Oregon, and he was a leader in the pro-life movement, still is. Here's what, here's what Randy, uh, Randy's experience was. Randy was kind of in charge of organizing some pro-life demonstrations and stuff, and he was arrested multiple times. And he got sued by the abortion clinics because he was the guy who was the spokesman. He was out there. And so there came down judgment against him to pay for the legal fees of the abortion clinic. And he said, I can't, I can't give the abortion clinic any money because of what they're doing. So they said, well, anything that you make above minimum wage is going to go to the abortion clinic. So he said, okay, fine. He quit his church. And then he worked for minimum wage so that none of that money would go to the abortion clinic. A little bit later on, um, so he lived that way literally for years. Later on, the, the pro-abortion community began to use um, really strong legal weapons. One was called RICO, has nothing to do with Enrico, but it was a, it was a, it was a statute that they used to prosecute mafia people and organized crime. And so they pulled that out, and they started prosecuting pro-life leaders under the organized crime statutes, which carried huge penalties and long prison sentences and tons of money. So Randy Elkhorn was convicted under that statute because there were lots of judges that were sympathetic to the pro-abortion cause. He went to prison, um, had to resign his church, as I said before, had an $8.4 million judgment against him for his part in the pro-life movement. He's still a pro-life leader and unashamedly so. Eventually, those cases worked their way to the Supreme Court, which reversed them and said, this is about a bunch of junk. You can't use these laws for that. That's all. But this is what happens. You know, in the court system, it lasts for years. It bankrupted. There were lots of pro-life leaders that were bankrupted and lost everything because of, of these kind of prosecutions. Is that just or unjust? Is that fair or not fair? It's not fair. Martin Luther King went to prison. You know that famous letter from the Birmingham jail. I like this quote by King. 
He says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Our lives begin the day, I'm sorry, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. Our lives begin to end the day that we become silent about the things that matter. This is the wrestle. If you've ever read The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II, this is the wrestle that Bonhoeffer was wrestling with throughout that whole book. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does that actually mean? And he came to the conclusion that he had to resist Hitler and the Third Reich and the cruelty and all of that was going on. And for Bonhoeffer, it cost him his life. He was put in prison at Flossenburg prison camp and he was hanged a few months before the war ended. So it cost him everything. So here's, here's the question. If we're going to have, does the spirit of the lamb live in us? Is the spirit of the lamb inside of us? Are we willing to be redeemers and to go into community, society, even individual lives, even if it actually costs us something serious? I think that's the question. Wherever there's been a church in history that is willing to pay a price and sacrifice for what they believed, that church always had great power in their community to evangelize, and many people came to Jesus. That's the history of the church. You can look it up anywhere. That is the situation. So the question is, what does it mean for us as followers of the Lamb, now that He's justified us, now that He's taken our wickedness, now that He's taken our punishment, He absorbed all of the injustice that we, you know, would have been justice for us to get. So if He's living in us, do you think that He would ever call us to do something that might be costly? I, I'm not saying what it is. I'm not saying that we should go out and do pro-life um, you know, demonstrations. I mean, I've been arrested in pro-life demonstrations. Um, you know, it cost me several thousand dollars and whatever, 200 community service hours, which is a lot of time. Um, but nevertheless, it wasn't really a huge... I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just asking in general, like, is there anything that's worth enough in our lives that we value enough that we're willing to actually sacrifice something substantial for it? And if not, then I want to ask us to go back and look at the spirit of the Lamb who died in our place and died for us. There is a power... You know, you, you know the, the Christians through the years that have had the greatest power, and I'm, I'm just about done. Thank you for bearing with me here. I've been disjointed this morning because I've cut out like a third of everything. But um, throughout the history of the church, the Christians that have carried the most influence and been the most powerful are the martyrs. I know in the West, we're probably none of us here are going to give our life for Jesus, at least not in that way. But the question is, will we give anything for him? What will we give? At what point will we not give? That's the question I think he asks, looking at the lamb who laid down his life for us. This is Zinzendorf and the Moravians. You guys know this story. Ludwig von Zinzendorf was a German guy. 
started the prayer meeting that lasted for 100 straight years. Their whole purpose in praying was to send out missionaries. The first 65 years that they existed, they prayed 24-7, and they sent out 300 missionaries from their community. The first group of missionaries that they sent out went to the West Indies, and as they were standing on the boat, you guys know this story, there's two men there, one was engaged, one was not. They had decided they were going to go there and sell themselves into slavery in order to be able to preach the gospel because the only way they could get on that island was to either be a slave or to own something there, which they didn't. So they decided when they went there, they were going to go to the plantation owners and they were going to sell themselves to be slaves in order so that they could minister the gospel to the people in the community. When they stood up on the bow of the ship to wave goodbye to all of the family and friends and fiancés that are standing there, many of them crying and weeping, they lifted their hands famously and said, Let the Lamb who was slain receive the full reward of his suffering. Let the Lamb who was slain receive the full reward of his suffering. And they went and they began to evangelize. And the first, out of that first 29 people that the Moravians sent out to be missionaries, 20 of them died in the first three years. But also, when Zinzendorf went to that colony and that island a couple of years later, he went there to see what was happening with some of the missionaries that were there. And he couldn't find them. And he went around the island. He went up to where they had the prison in there. And he found out that they had been put in prison for preaching the gospel, but that there were literally hundreds of natives around the windows in the prison to come up and listen to them preach to them when they were there. And they had actually evangelized and won 450 converts on the island. the lamb who was slain receive the full reward of his suffering in my life can you say amen with me in my life whatever that means can 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 we just say to the lord lord whatever that means whatever that means for me let me do that thing if it means injustice for me to bring your justice then so be it whatever that means let it be so amen bless you guys come on dave Bow your heads with me for just a moment. Nick, come on up. I want you to think about your life. Think for us not to take just a few moments and reflect on our commitment to Christ would be very foolish of us. As sitting here listening to Barry this morning and I was reminded of times when I've sat with pastors in the dark of night in another part of the world, pastors who had been beaten and put in prison because they preached the gospel. And I came away from that 
asking myself the question, and I'll ask you the question, what is your commitment to God like? I, I can't answer for you. I can only answer for me. I can only wrestle with my life, my spiritual walk. Say, are you trying to put a guilt trip on us? No, not at all. Not at all. I'm just simply saying, please look at your commitment and see. You say, well, if the persecution gets tough, that's when I'll decide. No, you better lay the foundation now so that when the persecution comes, it's not a major decision to you then. Because rest assured, if you're waiting till the persecution comes to make that decision, every demon in hell will try to talk you out of it. So as your heads are bowed, this is between you and God. You, 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 may, be, you may feel like you're a baby Christian. Maybe you just got saved or just gave your heart to Christ just days ago. Check yourself today. And if you, you feel like you need to come up to these altars and just seal the deal with God or work it through, whatever you want, go ahead and come step forward now. If you want to stay in your seats, that's fine too. There's no problem. I think that probably we'll be thinking about this message all week long. At least I intend to. But what about my commitment to God? Am I committed to sell out 100%, to give him 100% of my life, regardless of what I'm facing? There are many people who call themselves Christians, and the first time that the winds of a storm blow, they run away from God. Can I tell you, please don't do that. When you face a storm in your life, please run to God. Get closer to God. Press in to Him. Press into Him. Everyone standing. I'll close in prayer and make my prayer your prayer. Fine-tune it and speak it to him. Father, today we've heard from your word and we've been challenged and we embrace the challenge. God, I pray that we would be committed to you. I pray that our faith in you would be strong that we would be sold out 100% to you. 
regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the trial, regardless of how hot a fire is, regardless of who mocks us, could we just be Christ-like? Holy Spirit, we need you to help us to do that. I'm not talking about being weird or odd or whatever, but just in love with you so that people around us would see that we've been with you and that we're in love with you. I pray for each individual, whether they're in school this week or at work this week or wherever, even on vacation. Help us to live for you. Help us to sort through these issues now. Give us your strength, your courage. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Before we step out, I just want to have Brandon and Allison. I see Allison. Come, come up here, Barry. Come, please come. Just stay right here. It's fine. Brandon's coming. Allison is uh, great with child, should we say? But we already had one delivery today, Gospel and Luke. I already had one this morning, seven something, I heard. But I, I want you to stretch your hands out. The due date is upon them, and the baby is coming. Barry, would you pray for them? Father, we thank you again for your great goodness and blessing us with children. Thank you for Brandon and Allison and their great heart for you and for bringing this new baby into their lives. Father, we pray for your hand to be upon them, for your favor, for your grace to be their portion every day, your strength that even during the delivery, before, during, and after, that your presence would be very near and that your grace would be very obvious, that you would give strength, that you would give um, everything that they need. Father, that you would bless them, continue to bless them financially in their home, continue to give them all that they need in wisdom, in, in supply of any kind for these children. And Father, I pray that you continue to teach them to do what they're doing a good job of right now, which is making an atmosphere in their home where you are pleased to dwell so that you can win these little ones to yourself early on and make yourself real to them. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And Kevin and Amy are out at the hospitality booth, so if you're a visitor and you got a card, maybe you missed the card, but you're a visitor, Stop by and say hello to them on your way out the door. Everyone have a great week. We'll see you next time.